1: Now, if you feel like you've heard this before, you may have. We first went to air with this episode about a week and a half ago, but we had to unexpectedly cut away for a presser on the war in Ukraine from President Biden. We carried on behind the scenes and are pleased to present this very important episode in full today. Now, this is a pivotal moment for the future of anti-violence work in our city. Nashville is about to invest over a million dollars into one program called Cure Violence. The idea is that it treats community conflict like an infectious disease and takes a public health approach to preventing the spread. Think early detection and prevention by interrupting violence before it escalates. But as the city gets ready to fund this more community-minded approach, some residents wonder whether officials are investing enough to set up the program for success.
2: When you think about a million dollars and consider what the city's
1: budget is, you know, that's just a drop in the well of a problem that, that affects the entire city. One local group, Gideon's Army, has already been trying out this approach for the past few years, even with limited funding, and they've had mixed results. WPLN criminal justice reporter Samantha Max spent a few weeks shadowing Gideon's army in one neighborhood in North Nashville to see what violence interruption looks like and how it works exactly. She takes us there now, to the Cumberland View Public Housing Complex, just down the road from our studio.
3: It's a Wednesday evening in Cumberland View. The sun is starting to set, and the area is calm. A group of shirtless kids is playing basketball. People are chatting on the lawn and ambling down the street. Some stop by to say hi to Hambino Godbody.
4: What up, sister?
3: Hambino is a leader with Gideon's Army. A lot of the time, he says, this is what violence interruption looks like. Just being out in the community talking to people.
4: Violence interruption is bigger than standing in between guns trying to catch bullets. You know what I mean? It's all about bringing some kind of love and respect and peace to a community that's not familiar with that kind of love, respect and peace.
3: That means organizing community suppers, playing football with kids when they get home from school, getting people mattresses and groceries and other things they need.
4: People are out here living in poverty and poverty creates a a whole lot of hellish conditions. So it's all about just seeing the people as being redeemable and not giving up on them. So that's the difference between us and whoever else.
3: Tonight, the team is huddled on the sidewalk beside the red brick low-rises of Cumberland View, which many residents call Dodge City, as in Dodge the Bullets.
4: It's like one of the most dangerous communities, was one of the most dangerous communities in Nashville, <laughs> Tennessee.
3: Gideon's Army is trying to change that. Their violence interruption approach is modeled after a program called Cure Violence. Gary Slekin is the epidemiologist who created it. He says you need to treat violence as a disease, just like cholera or HIV.
1: It's an epidemic process, so it needs to be managed through an epidemic approach.
3: He says the best way to stop the spread is to change people's behaviors, to prevent violence beforehand, not to punish people afterward. And he says you do that by gathering a team of people from the community who have strong relationships with residents. They're a mix of volunteers and paid employees who all go through training.
4: Hey, how you doing? I'm Gold. I'm T-Tab. This Jackson. My name is Michael.
3: Here in North Nashville, these are the credible messengers. Credible because they were once the ones with guns. But now they're back in their neighborhood unarmed, using their street cred to convince people not to shoot.
4: They you know be talk to them. They can relate to what we're seeing, where we come from, because we all from the same place.
3: That's Cumberland View resident Kenneth Clayton. Michelle Fox lives here, too. She says she trusts the violence interrupters more than she trusts public officials.
5: I go to Gideon's Army before I go to the police station. Gideon's Army is the government, if you ask me.
3: This approach to public safety isn't new. It's been around for decades. But it is pretty new to Nashville, so let's take a quick look back at the city's brief history with violence interruption. Gideon's Army first started trying this out here in the Cumberland View neighborhood in 2019. The next year, police data show... Violent crimes went up during a county-wide search. But they dropped in this neighborhood last year. In fact, not a single person was shot in the housing complex over a 10-month period after the program started. But during that time, there were shots fired when no one got hit. And last fall, the group was criticized for not counting those incidents. Tonight, News Channel 5 investigates, uncovers serious questions about a popular social justice group. A News Channel 5 series suggested Gideon's army was exaggerating its success. The reporting also scrutinized the group for hiring a former gang member, who actually ended up getting killed in a shootout.
6: Was it an attempt to save a life or a deal with the devil?
3: The group denies most of the claims. But long story short, an organization that claimed it was making North Nashville safer was accused of making the community more dangerous. And all this was happening just as Gideon's army was hoping to get money from the city for its violence and eruption program. The TV story suggested Gideon's army couldn't be trusted with the funds. And some other local violence prevention advocates agreed, like Jamel Campbell-Gooch.
2: We have to do it right. We're trained assessment and evaluation, because if we don't do it with those things, we can actually end up in a worse place.
3: Until recently, Jamel was the number two at Gideon's Army. He helped to start the violence interruption program. Jamel left the job a few weeks before the news stories published. Gideon's Army says he was fired. He says he worries the organization could jeopardize all violence interruption efforts in Nashville. That includes his plans to create a city-run network of grassroots groups.
2: Without that foundation, We'll end up in a situation where we don't have a credible violence and eruption program across the city.
3: After the T V stories aired, Jamel and other grassroots organizers held a press conference to set themselves apart from Gideon's army. They wanted the city's money to be spread more evenly between the many groups working to curb violence.
5: You keep putting that same money in one egg basket. Pumped right. it, dumped it, and broke all the eggs.
3: That's Clemmy Greenlee I'm with Nashville Peacemakers.
5: I've for money so
3: many times.
5: So if I'm still standing here without anybody's money, what are they telling you? Mm-hmm. I know
3: something. The fight for funding was heating up. And people like Greenlee saw Gideon's army as a darling of the people in power who would be doling out the money. But it hadn't always been that way. A Republican political ad once called them extremists and radicals. The former police chief even called their work morally disingenuous. But then the 2020 tornado swept through North Nashville. Suddenly, Gideon's army was handing out meals and clothing and finding places for people to stay. And that started to draw more attention than their calls to defund the police. Here's founder Rashida Fatuga.
0: Nashville watched us respond to the tornado. They watched us be in public housing communities that nobody
3: wanted to be in at night with no lights. The tornado hit just a few months after Gideon's army launched its violence interruption program. They hadn't raised all the money they needed, so they hired fewer employees with less training. We basically built this plane while it was flying. Rashida says she couldn't wait for more funding to come around. I just felt like if
0: I jumped, I would fly. And if I crashed, I'd crash, but I'm going to get back up because, like, these are my kids.
3: Rashida is a former Metro Schools teacher. She started Gideon's Army to try to save her students' lives. One of my kids was killed, and he told me when he was eight
0: years old, that he would die before he saw 18.
3: After years of consoling grieving families, even grieving her own loved ones, she didn't feel like the city felt the same urgency she did to stop the bleeding.
0: What is reported out is numbers. They are data. But what is not reflected is their lives, the pain that they experience, and how alone and abandoned they feel by this city as they go through these traumas and nothing changes.
3: Rashida disputes most of the allegations against the group, but she says she also knows there are things she would have done differently with more time and resources.
0: I'm always looking at how to do things better. I'm always looking at how to be better, how to be able to give more. It's just really hard to do that on a shoestring budget.
1: When you think
2: about a million dollars and consider what the city's budget is, you know, that's just a drop in the well of a problem that, that affects the entire city.
3: Larotha Williams is a local historian who has made it his mission to inform the public about Nashville's past. If you've listened to one of his lectures or scrolled through his Twitter feed, you know he's got a real grasp on how the inequities we see today stem from the decisions made before. He says officials often settle on short-term remedies instead of thinking more deeply about the root issues driving violence.
2: Is it poverty? Is it perhaps some um, some actions or things that we are doing that discriminate both directly and indirectly against Black people? So that causes cause us a wet. Take a look at the schools, jobs, housing in our history of, 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 of dealing with them.
3: Last month, the city started accepting applications for a nearly $2 million violence interruption pilot program in North Nashville. That might sound like a lot. But for context, $240 million went to policing this past year. And multiple groups will likely be vying for the same small pot of money. Nonprofits have until late April to apply. But in the meantime, the work continues with or without city funding. Back in Cumberland View on that Wednesday night last fall, I'm walking down the sidewalk with T, one of the Gideon's Army violence interrupters. He tells me he broke up a fight just a couple weeks earlier.
4: Two groups, different groups, was, you know, had a problem between each other. I had to intervene, step in the middle, with guns everywhere. So I didn't know if I was going to make it home then.
3: He says he's used to being around people with guns. He grew up with it. But that doesn't make this work easy. He says he's always praying that he'll make it home safe.
4: At the end of the day, when I come out, put my shoes on, drop my kids off at school, my goal is to come to work, do my job, and pick my kids up from school because they're expecting it. But the job I do, one day I might not be able to pick them up no more.
3: Hambino Godbody, the leader of the team, says that's just part of the job.
4: You just gotta be fearless out here because, you know, your life on the line, like right now we out here. Metro not out here. So if a shooting happen right now, you know, we're gonna have to, we don't run from the gunshots. We make sure the kids safe. We're gonna make sure you safe. And, you know, that's the difference. We out here.
3: What's the hardest part of your job?
4: Losing life. You know what I mean? Because we wish we could save everybody even though we know we can't. That's the hardest part, just, you know, because it it was a once upon a time in my life that when I was ignorant, I could have just listened and my life would have been better.
3: Hambino stops mid-thought. What
4: you say? Kids are running to him.
3: Come over here. The kids say there was a shooting. Hambino gets on the phone and starts hustling toward the scene. By now, adults are shrieking for their kids to get inside. (laughs) No one gets hit by the bullets that night. But the gunshots send a chill through the community all the same. On nights like this, Rashida Fatuga is sad. She's frustrated. She knows there aren't enough violence interrupters to be in all places at all times. And that means shootings are still something the residents of Cumberland View have to worry about. The process isn't perfect, she says but she's still hopeful. It's really beginning to shift community
0: culture. And, and that's something that is also, you know, when you're looking from the outside in, that's something that might be hard to see, but when you're here and when you, you are here in the midst and there's a shooting and a child runs from the other part of the, the neighborhood over to find the violence interrupters, to say, come over here in the middle of a shooting, and fix this and make us safe, that's invaluable, that's invaluable.
1: That came to us from WPLN criminal justice reporter, Samantha Max. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to spend time with folks who are personally affected by violence to hear what they would like to see the city and advocacy groups do to keep our community safe. Stay with us. I'm Khalil Ekulona, and this is Nashville. Before the break, we were tagging along with the Gideon's Army violence interrupters. That approach to anti-violence work can look a lot more like just being out in the community, which is why many say it's effective. It's about building relationships, being present. That's something that Clemy Greenlee knows about. She runs Nashville Peacemakers, and we'll hear from her later in the show. But this past weekend, Miss Clemmy held an event called Curb the Violence at Hadley Park. It was a gray, cool Saturday, but that didn't dampen the vibe. There were food trucks, vendors selling crystals and hair oil, and the 615 Platinum Showstoppers were performing.
0: I like doing events like this just so that you can, you know, Meet new people, get your business exposed, you know, be in the community, see people, you know, just be involved, get out the house, out the four walls. So
1: this kind of community building and community support is what a lot of anti-violence work in this town really looks like.
5: It's for the community that we work for and work with.
0: I see you.
2: You know, these,
0: these to get really up,
1: up, yeah. people As the city prepares to invest nearly $2 million in community-based violence prevention work, we find ourselves at a pivotal moment for the future of public safety in Nashville. As the officials deliberate, we want to spend time with community members who are personally affected by violence to get a better sense of what that's like and to find out what they would like to see the city do to keep our community safe. I'd like to welcome my first guest, Susie McClendon from Mothers Over Murder. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to This Is Nashville.
7: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Well, Susie, how are you?
7: I'm doing good.
1: Wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. Can you can you tell us about your son Eric? What was he like?
7: Eric was uh he was our household comet. He always made everyone laugh. He always joked. We had fun. Eric was part of our everyday life. He made our household happy, fun. He also was the same way in school. He played sports from the age of four till he was in high school. Then he became a father, which he loved and adored his daughter. He was just an average kid that liked to have fun.
1: Do you have a favorite memory about Eric that you can share with us?
7: Yes. We had went out of town And Eric got lost. He was, and Eric is redheaded, so he's always easy to point out. When I found Eric, he was having a meltdown. He's like, Mama, you just left me like that. I was like, Eric, I didn't leave you. So all that day he went around telling everybody, my mama left me. She don't want she was he was only eight at the time. Hmm. My mama left me. Why would your mama leave you in a place that's unfamiliar? And we laughed about that all the way up until he was grown. I said, You remember that time you always tell people I left you? He's like, You did leave me. I know I didn't. <laughs> Eric was Eric was Eric. He was just a fun child.
1: Yeah. He sounds like it. Now yeah. how how has Eric's passing affected your family?
7: Um, me personally I'm still stuck on December the 7th of 2017. I can't get past that my son is really gone. And my children in between 2017 till today has also lost a brother to homicide. So they bought two brothers to homicide and they lost a father to cancer. So my children are being affected left and right and they still haven't got over the passing of Eric. So my children is really having a hard time right now. So I try to... Give all my support
2: to them
1: right now. I'm really sorry to hear this tragedy uh, overcome and fall upon your family. I, I express my deepest condol- condolences to you. you know I want to I want to ask you about police. I'm curious. what was your relationship like with police before your son's death?
7: Uh, I didn't have no problem with the police i I thought we all lived equal lives and everything was fine. I never had a run-in with the police that, I mean, I'm an army wife, so I always was, you know, up to the police to their standards. You know, anything in government force, I always looked up to mm-hmm. until Eric passed.
1: How has it changed since then?
7: Let me see, how can I quote this? The non-Karen, the Shalant, like, my okay, he's murdered, that's fine. There's been plenty of evidence in my son's case with no arrest. It's like when I go to the police department to talk to the detective over Eric's case, they don't even acknowledge you enough to take you into a private room and speak with you. They speak with you in the open lobby where everybody can hear what you're talking about. Mm. And then the district attorney, I had a conversation with them back in October, and I was asking them could they find the video that my son was murdered on. And he just laughed like it was okay. He was like, well... There was a lot of homicides in 2017. Okay, but I'm talking about December the 7th, 2017, at approximately 930 in McClendon. Mm -hmm. And till this day, I still haven't got a call back from the DA.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake-Alona. We're talking this hour about violence in Nashville and what our fellow community members would like to see happen to keep us all safe. My next guest is Clemmy Greenlee, founder of and CEO of the anti-violence group Nashville Peacemakers. Hey, Ms. Clemmy, thank you for being on the show.
5: Yes, good evening. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. All right.
1: Am I right when I say that you and Susie know each other?
5: Unfortunately, yes, sir. And the reason I say unfortunately is because I hate this is the way I had to meet her to be a part of my mother's Over Murder group. Uh, she's a beautiful woman and I wish I met her on all the circumstances, but I am so honored to have her uh in my life, period.
1: Mm-hmm. For those who might not be familiar, can you tell us why did you start Nashville Peacemakers?
5: Oh wow, so it was a it really was a hunt to me that I felt that was going on when I started seeing my son uh. With a group of guys in in 2003, and had flags. Well, I mean flags, bandanas and and pistols uh carrying. And I had asked my son, um, you know, what is what is this thing y'all got with all these bandanas hanging out of your pocket, black, black red, and and blue and family's got orange and brown and yellow, and I, you know, and everybody get talking about it. it's just a phase; they're going through. It's just a phase, and I'm like, no, I don't think it's no phase. So when I uh, started questioning my son, t- telling him I think this is something that's going to turn dangerous, oh, mm-hmm. uh, I just had a feeling about it, really did. And anyway, he, you know, he laughed it off like everybody else, and. It ended up that it costed my son's life. Uh, His flag was blue. And he went in uh, the projects that we had here called Cellar Court, which is on Litchie Avenue. Uh, And he went over there. And evidently, you don't go in each color's uh, territory. And my son was murdered. Um, He was murdered um, rather was for the blue flag or just being in the wrong place. So when a detective knocked on my door, this is what they said to me, you know, my son's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you know, you you, you don't want to hear that. Not no, not only just no mother want to hear that, you a your father, anybody, sister, anybody. What you mean we're in the wrong place at the wrong time? I get shot and killed at Clover, so I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so at the end of the day, the flags kept coming because my my uh, step-grandson and my nephew, both 18 years old, they started wearing the flags, you know, the different color uh, bandanas. And my my nephew was murdered in 2015, and my step-grandson was murdered 2014.
1: I'm sorry so, for all this loss that yeah. you've suffered. I really am. Uh, yeah.
5: So that, that really... They kind of started it, but I think it had already started, really. I just put it in put it on paper. But it, that was really the reason why, because they're just like, oh, my God, nobody's really paying attention to what's really going on out here with these young people. And then that's when the guns start escalating. The bandanas was already out there. The, the guns start coming along with it. And now this is where we at
1: today. Through your work over the years, you've met with the city and the police, and from your point of view, where is the city falling short when they address violence?
5: Uh, they don't have the right people at the table. They they are looking for too many educated people when they need to look for the less educated people, because even though we don't have the PhDs or the accolades behind our names, we are we have a street experience, we have a community experience, and we have street credibility something that they don't have and places that they can't and won't come to. Um, Giving money to to bigger organizations never works, ever. Not just because but in the last three, four years, we've really been corrupted with, with bullets flying everywhere. Even when my son and I was talking about my son's murder, they were still giving money to the wrong places. So the state need to not figure out, they need to listen to us. We've been talking like this for 10 years or more. And that's what I was telling somebody yesterday. And I think I was getting ready to tell the lady who called me, I I don't want to do this again. Uh, All we're doing is just talking. Ain't nothing happening. And that's why I was speaking everywhere now. Uh, Until the state get people like me, uh, Randall is on here, Susan, people like us need to be the one to get hired to go out here and reduce the violence in our community. Um, Gilligan Army did a damn good job. They they set them up for a trap. I don't care what nobody say. Uh, But that's who the team that need to be out here. People should have gotten in with them and had that thing structured a little better.
7: Mm
5: -hmm. Uh, But uh, I'm speaking for myself now, but I just want to throw that in there about them. They did a good job. They were just all over the place and they knew that. That's why they put all that money in one basket because they knew the egg was gonna crack, but mine gonna stay bored. So you gonna never crack it with or without their money. That's, That's it, it need to be people like us are sitting at the table.
1: Susie, what would you like to see from the powers that be?
7: I would like to see our communities come back together for our children and build a foundation as we all grew up in, to help the children be successful in life instead of failures. Because I feel like our system is failing our children. In what ways? There's no, academics. We shouldn't have to pay $300 and $400 for our kids to go play peewee football. I know when my children were coming up, it was 30 to $40. It's like everything, the community centers, for instance, don't even have free things for the children to do because everything costs so much money, and and the low-income families can't afford it, so that turns our kids to the streets. Mm -hmm. I'm sick of seeing good children turn to the streets because they have no grounding on our communities. I speak to children every day, and their main thing is we don't have nothing to do.
1: Clemmy, the focus on preventing violence is mainly honed on the streets. But tell me, where else should we be looking if we wanna really give a full effort in stopping violence, places that are not in the streets, where should we be looking at?
5: Well, we definitely gotta go back into the homes and the centers. You know, we have to. Uh, everybody's taking it to the police department in the middle co-op places. That, that's not gonna get it. And we're trying to keep them out of there. So I was talking again yesterday, because I was at a meeting, doesn't I mean I keep talking about again yesterday. Um, when I talk about one porch at a time, that means that we, no matter how we finna get cursed out, how many people finna tell us no, we got to go back to those porches. Like Susan's saying, the system is failing our kids, but we are failing our kids too. And so we we have to go inside the homes. We we have to go back inside the schools to speak on stuff like what Susan talking about. And we have to go back inside the centers because that's where they all are at. And people like us have to go organize in there. But people, that's over the board, the school board, and the, the school system, is certain things they won't let you come in and do and say. So that's why I always holler about. We have to get them in the street because you, go, you you're not going to be able to do what you want to do with them on the inside. So the the basic part of of all of this is uh, getting back in them homes. We gotta go back to the communities. We gotta go back to the village. I got a phone call a couple of nights ago. Well, I don't know. I know y'all probably saw it on the news where the 14 year old killed his mama's uh, boyfriend. Hmm. Did y'all see that?
1: I'm not familiar with that, no.
5: Okay, okay, well yeah, so It's in the homes. We got to go back to the homes. But you can't go back to the homes because you're in somebody's business. Going to people is like you got to lure them in. You cut the price at Walmart, you lured me in to go buy that dress. So when I go to their home, I got to go with something, a pick bag. I'm ready to pay their light bill up for a month. Or here go $500 on your rent. Or here goes somewhere your kind of You I gotta get in there to lure them in to trust me and believe that I'm gonna love on you and teach you and educate you one point at a time. That's where I'm heading at for this year.
1: Susie, what do people who have not been directly affected by violence not understand about the problem?
7: The the gun violence. They don't understand like I'm going to use myself for interest. Before Eric got murdered, I didn't care what was going on in the streets. All I cared about was going to work and paying my rent. But now I've talked to people. They're like, okay, it sounds interesting. But when it's time to act, they don't want to act because guess what? They're not in our shoes. So they don't know how we feel. We're trying to stop you from getting to our shoes. Mm -hmm. Because it's not a good feeling. I never dreamed I'd be talking about a child being murdered. People don't understand what's going on until it's in their household, and then it's too late. When all we try to do is take you under our wing, help you understand what's going on in the streets.
1: That is Susie McClendon. Thank you very much for joining us. Also, thank you to Miss Clemmie Greenlee of Nashville Peacemakers. I want to thank you both for being on the show. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about this pivotal moment for the future of anti-violence work in Nashville and invite a few guests who are taking on the issue of violence from slightly different angles. Stay with us. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil and this is Nashville. Today's episode is all about anti-violence efforts in our city and what community members whose lives have been affected by violence want to see the city do to keep us all safe. I'd like to welcome my next guest. Dr. Katrina Green is an emergency room physician at Nashville General Hospital. She is also a board member of Gideon's Army. Dr. Green, thank you for being here.
6: Thank you for having me.
1: So, Tell us how you encounter violence and its aftermath in your work as an ER doctor.
6: Sure. So, so I'm an, an emergency medicine physician, and my my first um, experience in violence is is coming at it as a physician treating patients who have been directly affected. So, when when patients come to the ER who've been shot, they end up in my trauma bay. And uh, myself and the trauma physician are the first ones to assess, You know, where is the patient shot? How badly are they hurt? Do we need to stabilize and go right to the operating room? Is this something I can patch up myself in the ER? So that's, that's where I come into this uh, uh, part of the equation.
1: So in the ER, you see victims of gun violence as they're fighting for their lives. For those of us who may not understand, can you tell us what a bullet does to the human body?
6: It, it's a pretty horrific uh, thing. So so bullets, you know, sometimes they can go through and through an extremity um, and just be when you, what we sometimes call a flesh wound. Uh, but as the bullet goes through the body, there's, there's a ripple effect, a shock wave uh, that can affect anything in the vicinity. So even... You know, outside where the bullet is going right through, you can, can have um, almost like a concussive, like pressure wave that can shatter a spleen, can fracture uh, bones. Uh, you know, I've seen bullets tear right through people's major blood vessels, and sometimes they bleed to death before they can even arrive to the hospital.
1: One of the hurdles in violence prevention work is retaliation. This can make it hard for anybody to get ahead of the problem, whether it's a violence interrupter or a police officer or a family member. How have you seen that cycle play out at your work?
6: Yes. Yeah, so there there was an incident uh, at my hospital a few years ago where we had uh, an injured patient from gun violence show up. And in the acute phase, while we were working to stabilize the patient, the I don't know if it was family members or friends, but but people that knew the patient uh, were discussing retaliating, and they left the premises of the hospital, went out into the community, and as a result of that one gun violence victim, the retaliation gave us five more victims that same evening.
1: I'd like to bring in my next guest. Randall Venson is a former social worker who runs the International Boxing Academy of Nashville. Thanks for joining us.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Of course, sir. What led you to start your boxing gym?
2: Well, as you mentioned, I was a social worker. Uh, when the, uh, neighborhood health got a new CEO, then he kind of changed, uh, directions and wanted me doing something other than social service, which is something that I didn't sign on for. So, uh, I wanted to start my own program uh, because I wrote a book called The Triangles of Life. And it was, uh, I worked as a boxing coach for many years, and it was Christy Halbert who suggested that I open a boxing gym. So, so I just happened to come across a facility in Bordeaux, North Nashville, at a strip mall on Clarksville Pike, and it was bacon. And uh, I talked to the owner of the strip mall was unable to get electricity, so we worked out a deal where I could get the facility but I kept the strip mall up. And that's how I started the uh, International Boxing Academy of Nashville. Uh, it's not just a boxing program, but we also consider ourselves a youth development program. However, we haven't been able to do much of youth development because of a lack of facility.
1: Now, you heard Dr. Green talk about retaliation and the, the effect that that has of violent crime. Now you work with young people who live by the code of the streets, so to speak. How do you see retaliation affecting your young people?
2: Well, it's always going to affect young people because it never stops. Retaliation means there's going to be some there someone else is going to retaliate. And then you you know, you just start creating enemies, more and more enemies. And that has always been the problem with the gangs. You get one of ours, we'll get two of yours. If you get two of, and it, it just snowballs. Mm-hmm. So uh, the violence is always there. And uh, it just never stops. The cycle continues.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil lake We're talking about violence prevention in our city. We were just hearing from boxing coach Randall Venson. Now, Coach Venson, we reached out to one of your kids, Shamarion Whitfield.
2: Kids don't like showing their emotions or talking about him. They mostly laugh to hide it. There's nothing to hide about them. feelings. Just either talk about it or it's going to come out in a bad way. Once they feel safe, then they can
1: talk about anything. Shamarion told us he feels safe, like he can talk about anything. That's That's huge. Coach Benson, how does hearing that make you feel?
2: Well, it makes me feel good. It makes me know that we are actually uh, having a connection with the kids that are in our program, and that's that's very important. Uh, one of the things that I didn't think was mentioned is the fact that with young men, they need men role models to teach them how to become men. I mean, you know, there's no... There's no No one's born with the ability to act as a man. They have to be taught that. And many of the young men that are, 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 that I work with as a social worker, they never had that male uh, person in their life. And oftentimes it's a, a social worker or a coach they become that person. But many young men today are gravitating towards sports like they used to. So they are devoid of positive male role models. And so that's another thing that I think we provide because we do have uh, male, men coaches. And we make sure that the men that coach at our uh, facility offer some wisdom that helps young boys become men.
1: So uh at, at at your gym, it's not just about training these young boys to be boxers and fighters and getting them physically fit, but it's also, we're also working on their character as well.
2: Exactly. I mean, because you have to have positive character even to be a successful boxer. I mean, people associate boxing with just violence, but it's more than that. It's 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 the ability to think, it's it's the ability to have critical thinking, it's the ability to understand that for every action there's a reaction. So you always think about what the reaction is going to be before you do the action. You know, if I do this, what is going to happen? It's the same thing in life, and many of these young men don't have good critical thinking skills, so they act before they even think about it. And for example, I had a situation where I talked to a young man that committed a murder, and one of the things I asked him is, what were you thinking? He couldn't answer me because he, he wasn't thinking. So there there's no critical thinking skill involved. So I've always been a firm believer in critical thinking skills and providing knowledge and letting young men and women know how the world works, for instance— We've had young people that live in the housing project, they assume that's their home. So that's not your home, that's the the government owns that home, you don't. And so these are things that we try to uh, educate young people on.
1: We talked a bit in our last segment about the money the city is preparing to invest in violence prevention work. But I have to ask, like, what else would you like to see the city do to help? Or is giving money all they could do? Dr. Green, I'd like to hear your comments.
6: I mean, money is is obviously a big part of it. It's hard to do this work without the funding. You heard Rashida earlier on the program talk about, you know, starting the program without the budget that she needed. Um, So a lot of it is the money, but part of it is just having more uh, people listen to what's going on in the communities and focus on this issue. Um, You know, there's a lot of other things going on in our city that, that get, more focused because they're more popular um, or, you know, politically, you know, in in the light of of the the public. Um, And so, but this is an issue that's important. I mean, lives are literally at stake here. So I think we need more people to be investing uh, their time and efforts. And and that's where where I come into this. Uh, I couldn't sit on the sidelines and just try to patch up people in the hospital. I needed to get out there and find a way to prevent these injuries. And I hope more people listening to this segment will, will do uh, the hard work and get involved as well.
1: How hard was it for you when you decided to really get involved in this work, the, the same way you are imploring listeners to?
6: I mean, initially, it was hard for me to even figure out who to talk to. Um, so, you know, I came into this as a result of, of watching teenagers, you know, die and bleed out in my emergency department and wondering, how do you prevent violence? Where, where do you start? And so my, my research led me to the cure violence group, uh, program out of Chicago. And so I reached out to them to find out, you know, how do I start a program like this in my city? And this was a couple of years ago. Um, and I had no idea, I hadn't heard about Gideon's Army and Rashida back then. Um, Cure Violence pointed me in her direction and we met and I, I just really fell in love with, with the concept of violence interruption and what her group was, was trying to do. Um, I felt that there was more that could be done should her group get the funding to do so. I really wanted to be able to have violence interruptions available in my hospital in real time um, to prevent that, that retaliation that we saw, that one case, that one victim led to five more. I felt like if we had violence interrupters that that were on call, that we could call into the hospital, be out there in the waiting room, that that's the piece that we're missing as medical professionals. We, we focus on the immediate, you know, this is a patient we have in front of us that has bullet holes in them. Where's the injury? How do we save their life? We're focused on that. And the piece that gets forgotten is the family members and the the loved ones that are in the waiting room having no idea, you know, are they dead? Are they alive? What's going on? How bad is it? And while they're out there, that that's a time that we could have someone in the waiting room with them you know, advocating for them. It, it's a terrible time for the family because of the uncertainty.
1: I'd like to loop back a little bit. D- Coach Renson. what would you like to see the city do to keep communities safe?
2: Well, quite naturally, as stated by the other guests, it does require funding, but also, it also requires uh, making sure that the organization that you're providing the funding for Is actually going to do the work that they say they're going to do and um, because uh, you know I think a lot of times from what I've heard a lot of times people are hesitant about who they give their money to and you know we have been struggling uh, as far as we've gotten some but not a significant amount to keep our program going we need we need more funding and that's the bottom line. I mean, uh, because what I try to do is I want to train individuals to be leaders because we need more leaders in the community. Uh, we have plenty of followers, but we have no leaders. And leaders need to be trained by people who have the wisdom and the knowledge to provide leadership for young people. We need more young leaders. That requires funding So, or Uh, institutions where we can house our organizations because nothing's free in this society and we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on infrastructure to build new housing for uh, new people coming in and that's all well and good but at the same time You want a safe city. And in order to have a safe city, you need institutions that are going to develop young people so that so that they're out there doing something productive rather than doing something that's destructive or self-destructive.
1: You know, we can't talk about violence prevention without talking about some of the root causes of violence. And I'd like to hear from you both on what you think. Some of the prime factor that leads to violence are and how we can address them, Doctor Green. I'd like to start with you.
6: Sure. I. I mean, when you when you think about the root causes of violence, I think a lot of that comes down to the same issues that cause poverty, um, you know, or, or poverty in and of itself. Um, we did see a spike in violence. Uh, in 2020, just like almost everywhere around the country, because people were hurting, you know, everything shut down and people were out of work. People didn't have income, desperate times, you know, desperate measures. And so, you know, we need to address poverty. We need to address the lack of affordable housing here in Nashville. And, one piece of the puzzle uh, is also the gentrification that's happening in our city that is pushing people out of the neighborhoods where they live and into other areas. We've seen a spike in violence directly related to that as North Nashville gets gentrified and a lot of those people get pushed into South Nashville. So that area has seen a big spike in violence recently as North Nashville violence levels have, have dropped.
1: Coach Vincent, I'd like to hear from you and give you the last word.
2: I agree with the doctor on the poverty and everything, but it would be remiss if we didn't uh, mention that there's a glorification of violence in our culture and our entertainment. Uh, that also leads to a lot of violence. People, uh, it's not art imitating life. Oftentimes it's life imitating art. So we see a glorification in violence. And again, People need a value system, and they need to value life, and they're not taught to value life. They're not taught to value themselves, and this comes down to education and knowledge. So you need you need to have that as well. You need to have that component as well as just trying to lift people out of poverty. Yes, you lift people out of poverty, but... You also have to provide the knowledge and the wisdom so that there's a healthy set of values to keep people from committing violence. And also having people realize that it's value in maintaining life and not trying to take life. That has to be
1: instilled. That is Coach Randall Venson. He was joined by Dr. Katrina Green. Thank you both for joining us. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back to this episode at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha AF Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Very special thanks to Reverend Davey Tucker, Sheila Clemens-Lee, Vera Wyatt, and WPLN's Samantha Max. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at ThisIsNashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.